Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. I'm Clinton Kurt. And I'm Devika Girish. We're the co-editors of Film Comment. On today's podcast, the first of an epic two-parter, we invited Film Comment contributing editor Jonathan Romney and critic and programmer Miriam Bale to dish on some of their festival viewing. We talked about Julia Ducourneau's Palme d'Or winner, Titan, Bruno Dumont's France, Compartment Number no. 6, Red Rocket, La Fracture, Lingui, The Sacred Bonds, Paul Verhoeven's Benedetta, and more. Part two of our conversation, covering Annette, Memoria, The Souvenir Part Two, and many other films, is coming soon, so stay tuned. Today, we have our much-awaited Cannes wrap-up episode, and we have two correspondents joining us from Cannes, two folks that we like very much and are very fond of their writing. So let us start with the veteran, Jonathan. Do you want to introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Jonathan Romney, and I'm a film critic based in London. And Jonathan wrote our first Can Dispatch that's now on the website, a sort of curtain raiser, touching upon a lot of the exciting opening premieres. So if you haven't read that, check it out. And the other guest, I believe, has not been on the podcast yet. So put your hands together for her debut, Miriam. Hi, I'm so pleased to be here. I am Miriam Bale, and I am covering the festival for W Magazine, but I'm also looking for films for the film festival that I program. I'm the artistic director of Indie Memphis, so I'm doing a sort of dual role here, and I'm so pleased to be here. Nice to see you all. Welcome, Miriam. Thanks for joining us. And Jonathan, as always, thank you for showing up and being here with us. Thank you. You know, you're both joining us right now from Cannes and maybe just briefly you could tell us a little bit you know a little about you know all the hoops that you've had to jump through and are now planning to jump out of and you know how everything's been. How's the weather? It's raining today um, but it's that's unusual I mean I think it's because all of Europe is flooding and even even the south of France got a little rain but it's um, been beautiful usually the festival is in May and it's in July this year, which um, is, so it's warmer than most years. Although this is my fourth year attending and I'm, Jonathan, how many years have you been to Ken? Well, I started in 1993, so it's been a while. 28. Oh my gosh, now I'm scared. Uh, you did say veteran, I think. <laughs> I, I'll introduce a note of debate right now by saying, actually, I've found it oppressively hot. Can in July is a bit too much for this. And actually one of the things about it is sometimes you come out in the sun and it's just, the sun is intensely bright in a way that I'm not used to, but- You're from England. Exactly, yeah. And, and Miriam you know, is it, from LA right now. Well, so. there you go, of course, you know. And, and if, if also, you know, if you're wearing a mask at any point when you're outside, like going into the Palais, wearing a mask and glasses, and, you know, they're steaming up while you're trying to find the codes on your phone to get you into the Palais, it's just a little more tense than, than usual. I have to say, at the beginning of the week, when I wrote that piece, I said, oh, it's going to be really quiet. And it was for the first couple of days, and then it got crazy. And actually, you know, Cannes has been really busy this week because there was this massive 14th of July celebration the other night, and the place has been rammed. But at the same time, the festival itself 
feels a bit quiet because so many people who would normally be here are not here. And there was a big Bastille Day festival, but it, it wasn't people attending the film festival. No. Is what you're saying? But there, I think that it, the festival itself, there there seem to be fewer Americans, which is an interesting thing as an American. Yeah. I'm seeing fewer colleagues, but it's kind of nice after you know being stuck in the US and this is my first overseas travels to just be, you know, really kind of really feel like a dumb American in a a healthy way. I disagree. I think, I mean, again, I'm in LA, you're in London. And so the heat has been nice in part because I do remember one year it was really hot and the worst thing about it was waiting in line. And the nice Mm. thing about this year is they have this new ticketing system. So there's a hierarchy of badges. And if you have a white or pink badge, which maybe Jonathan did, you don't have to wait in long lines. But if if you don't, you have to wait at least an hour or two before most screenings. And that's that can be hellish, like waiting in the sun in these lines. But this new ticketing system is wonderful. You can you see more films and you can even, because it's warm enough, take a quick dip in the sea in between screenings, which is it's normally not warm enough to do. Yeah, it's actually changed since the beginning of the week because in the first couple of days, the queues were enormous and oh. there were also problems getting into the palais itself. I mean, there's sometimes, you know, you have to go through extra hoops to get in and show your... your um, your code to show that you've had your COVID test. But, you know, otherwise that hasn't been too bad. The one thing that has changed in the last few years, and apparently this was at the behest of Sean Penn, who was supposedly very upset about reading the very negative reviews of one of his films before it played in competition. So apparently as a result of this, um, they changed uh, a press screening schedule which had been in place you know as long as anyone could remember it was always the same you would turn up 8 30 in the morning see the first competition press screening do whatever you did during the day and then you'd go to the press show for the next day's screening which would be at 7 30 and it was you know you could time it it was like religion you know it was like 8 30 in the morning 7 30 in the evening then you went to have dinner there's a new system it's been in place since I think three years ago, uh, which means that everyone tends to see the films at a different time. So what you suddenly lose is the sense of, you know, you lose the kind of the intense heat of people seeing the same film together for the first time in the world at exactly the same point. So you lose the kind of expectation, you lose the sense of event, you lose the camaraderie. And this is all because of Sean Penn? Allegedly, yeah, allegedly it's all. And it's kind of taken the excitement out of the festival in a way, certainly out of the competition. What are your thoughts on Flag Day? Mm. (laughs) I didn't see it, but I've heard... Neither. Nor I've heard very negative things. I think I learned my lesson from the last one and not to see a Sean Penn movie in competition at Cannes. And I think a lot of people did not, and it's been very amusing to hear responses. Although I think it was fairly well reviewed. So whatever new system he put into place seems to be working. All right. Well, that's it for weather comment. Now moving on to the films. So we thought we would start with a film, you know, some films that uh, there there's some disagreement about just, you know, start with the heat. 
And I believe Miriam and Jonathan, you wanted to talk about France. Yes. I think we just both saw it last night or yesterday. It's a new Bruno Dumont film starring Lea Seydoux. And it's different than the last few Bruno Dumont films that I've seen. Like I think the last film I saw in Cannes that he did was the two Joan of Arc films, which were very eccentric and strange and these Joan of Arc musicals. And this is a big film about a television journalist. Her name is France. And she, so it's about the country and the person. And it has these very sort of ambitious, maybe even pompous goals of describing current France currently. But the reaction was really interesting. I think I've always really enjoyed this festival because of the strong reactions from critics, including the famous booze. And this reaction, I couldn't quite tell what the noise was. It was this sort of loud noise and then hissing. And I think that the reaction was a combination of booze and cheers. So it had a really mixed reaction. What did you think of it, Jonathan? It's really interesting. Actually, I remember his second film here, uh, Humanity, which probably was one of the most loudly booed films in Cannes, partly because he, he issued a press kit that was available in your locker earlier in the day and it was Bruno Dumont's philosophy of cinema. And he really rubbed people up the wrong way because people go, oh, right, he thinks he's Robert Bresson, does he? And so, you know, it was a very, I hate to use the word pretentious. It's not a word I, I use, but let's say he, he was wearing his, his intent very heavily on his sleeve. Since then, weirdly, you know, he's become one of the filmmakers I, I'm most fascinated by in French cinema. But he's very uneven. I didn't like his Joan of Arc films at all. I did like his sudden reinvention as France's king of comedy with two Petit Cancan TV series, which I thought were terrific. He's normally associated with high austerity. France is really interesting because he's made a film which is incredibly brash. It's very flashy. Léa Seydoux, who, who is in four films here, and she's absolutely fantastic in this one, wears a kind of, uh, of postmodern high couture wardrobe that is so kind of visually, you know, in your face. You know, I think Almodovar's costume director probably would have said, no, I think you're going a bit too far here. And, and it's a very kind of visually intense film, very glamorous. I mean, it plays very knowingly with the, the star status and the glamour of Lea Seydoux herself, who actually uses her face extraordinary. I mean, I mean, I think she's becoming better with every film. And she's even really good in the Arnaud Desplechins, uh, Philip Roth adaptation here, which is otherwise kind of near. But she's very good in this. But, but it's very odd because it, the changes of tone are really odd. There's a lot of rather kind of, you know, goofy media satire um, in her interplay with her assistant, who's played by a comic actor called Blanche Gardin, who's very much on the up in French cinema. And she has a few scenes at the beginning in which she's absolutely brilliant. And then she's kind of called on to do the sort of same thing over and over again throughout the film. And then you get these moments of weird, very kind of Dumont-esque, severity and you know a bit like Mikhail Haneke you have the feeling that he's wagging his finger at, at us and saying you know if you are enjoying this film then there is something terribly wrong with you. In terms of its celebration of nationalism and? Well it's not really about nationalism but it's about the kind of the, the uh, Americanization of French media 
Uh, and he's sort of, in a sense, he's saying, if you're enjoying the glamour and, you know, the bright colours, what, what a trivial person you are and you're part of the problem. In fact, I mean, it's a very entertaining film until it isn't, but you can still feel, and he's having a lot of fun at the beginning. He even uh, kind of grafts Emmanuel Macron into the action very cleverly at the beginning. Oh, so that is real. I saw I saw some video of that online and I was so confused. So it's sort of photoshopped or whatever, seamlessly. Let's say there's but kind of composited into it. Like but, a deep but, fake. Yeah, and it's funny. You know, it's funny, but then it just sort of makes the same point too many times too heavily. Yeah, I think that it's a very superficial film and it's sort of, as Jonathan said, it's sort of like, you know, parodying, critiquing superficiality, but it is itself that too. There's the whole line where someone asks her, well, are you right wing or left wing? And she said, well, it doesn't even matter. And, you know, that's the character, that's the world, but that's also the film. And yet it's sort of in on its own joke, like, like you know, um, but it really is, I didn't find that, I didn't find it, bad. I, there were a couple, two films maybe that I really disliked in different ways. One that I thought was just a bad film, another I disagreed with. And I, I enjoyed watching this. I loved the clothes. I mean, it was, you can't, you, the, watching her in these costumes was just so entertaining, but it really felt like a fashion magazine after a while. It felt like, it felt like an ad for Chanel or perfume or something with, oh, and it sort of like just kept stretching the point. It had all of these sort of different news items, but didn't really do anything new. And there were some things that were just like, almost like going towards comedy, there's a death scene that is a little bit ridiculous and um, is really played for this like high comedy almost. And and yet when I was watching the scene, I was like, is that Sardinia? Yeah. That's so pretty. I wonder if they got funding there. And then of course I was looking at all the credits and it really just feels like an mm. advertisement. Oh, um, yeah. And so it was like, after a while, I didn't think this was bad, but it was a bit superficial, maybe a touch evil, like, you know, it's about new neoliberalism and it is that too. Mm. And it was like, and I actually find Lea Seydoux a little bit dull, like she's so beautiful. And I don't know if anyone else could have handled this role as like the, you know, icon of, of the country and this very famous, beautiful star, like she's perfect for that. But in a way, it's just her crying. And it also has bits that remind you of like, broadcast news but doesn't quite go there and it's not interesting or entertaining enough and so I found it too long and actually I'm a little bit you know it's also interesting Leia Seydoux is not here she even though she has four films because I believe she has COVID I think yeah. she was tested positive mm. for COVID yeah huh. and so she's, right, she's right not right. here for the red carpet you know I wish that Virginie Efira who's in Benedetta would have I feel like I would like to see more of her and a little less of Lea Seydoux because I feel like they're both these beautiful blondes with just these like these like wonderfully round kind of broad faces and but I find Virginia Ephra uh, so much more of an interesting performer. There's something really wild about her and a little bit unhinged or something and a little bit eccentric and I never get that from Lea Seydoux. Yeah. I, I love her watching her but just watching Lea Seydoux wear glamish clothes and have tears that look like eye drops. <laughs> it didn't last. Well, that might be a good way to talk about, uh, start talking about Benedetta, which she's the star of. So Miriam, I know you had a strong reaction, right? I don't know if I had a strong reaction. This was a film that I wanted to have a stronger reaction, to be honest. Um, 
I loved her performance. I thought she was wonderful. I'm a huge Verhoeven fan. So this was probably my most anticipated film for, you know, all of the pandemic. And I did not love it quite as much as I wanted to. But I think maybe my issues with it might be very different than I think Jonathan really, you really didn't like it, did you? I, I really didn't like it. It felt, it actually felt to me really clumsy. There is this sort of disreputable movie subgenre, which is, uh, you could call it the historical hot nun movie. And, you know, Valerian Borovchik really made it his own pretty much. And I guess um, Verhoeven is kind of consciously going back to that uh, cycle. But, he, you know, it wasn't very, it wasn't very, exciting in terms of outrage. I was hoping that, uh, you know, he really would push the boat out a bit in terms of provocation. Someone said it felt like a rather creaky a Hammer film. And it looked to me like a sort of rather, rather sort of slightly threadbare 1970s European co-production. There were moments when you felt that sort of provocation and humour were going to come out at you and they didn't quite. There's one line I liked in it where um, she says to the, uh, the papal nunciate played in a very big purple hat by um, Lambert Wilson. She says, I want to ride out into the square on the back of a donkey like Jesus. And he goes, OK, well, it's no to the donkey. But then at the beginning, there's a moment when she arrives at the convent, she arrives in this town with her family and they ride into the town square and there are a bunch of people on the stage and a bunch, bunch of people out. And you can just see, you know, the assistant director standing there and going, okay, you look well, when I, when I say action, be medieval now. Uh, and it, it just felt kind of bogus to me. I couldn't, I, I actually found it very boring and slightly farcical. I wanted it to be more exploitation. I wanted it to be more, I think that's a really good reading that, you know, that's that's Verhoeven's background. You know, he did some of those early Dutch films are very like exploitation, exploitation. And so I think you're right, it's very conscious. I went into this film, you know, the last film that I saw that he made was Elle, which is very slick and beautiful, you know, and I feel like in a way it's almost a parody of certain kinds of French adultery movies. And this was not that at all. This was absolutely, you know, very more coarse, more exploitation. And so it was, it was more like showgirls, but a sort of um, knowing showgirls, like a very like, you know, you get the feeling when he made showgirls, he wasn't quite, I think now he knows that it's like, you know, it's a cult film. And he's with that awareness, he kind of went in with this film kind of like, you know, everything is a kind of wink, wink, nod, nod joke. And Showgirls is not that. And most of his films that I love are not that. They're just the, these purely, totally committed films. Um, they're ridiculous, but they take themselves very seriously in their own way. And this doesn't. And I found that it took me out a little bit. The 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 sort of like the, the heavy handed jokes, the sort of like visual, some of the, the CGI, like there's a very famous Virgin Mary dildo scene that has been written about that was like, okay, you saw that coming. The only thing I've, I know. I don't want to spoil it for anyone, but it's been very well spoiled. I thought perhaps, you know, he made this film as a thank you to Jacques Rivette because Rivette was 
you know, the world's number one defender of showgirls. And I wonder if Verhoeven thought, I know what I'll do. I'll, I'll, I'll cross showgirls with Rivette's La Religieuse and then, you know, it will be the perfect film. I it's love my- that theory. I, that's like, that should be its tagline for sure. But you felt like there wasn't quite enough of that, like, of that sleaze. Mm. Or anything. There wasn't enough of the sleaze. There wasn't enough of the seriousness. It was just a little bit, I would like a little bit less of a male gaze. To be honest, I felt like I... Well, you are talking about the director of Showgirls. Yeah. I know, yeah. but this is like a hot lesbian film. And I find right, Virginia right. Effer also completely hot. And I was right. waiting for there to be, you know, I mean, that's going again with the uh, the Virgin Mary dildo. There was lots of like breasts and phallic symbols. And what does that have to do with lesbian sex? Do you know what I mean? Like, I feel like that there was this very, like, in not just a male gaze, like a very adolescent male gaze. I think I wanted it to go either more, either sexy and serious or sexy and sleazy. And it ends up being not about the relationship between the two women who are having an affair, the two nuns. It becomes really more about Charlotte Rampling and Virginia Ephra and this sort of like reason versus passion and mm-hmm. absolute like unreasonableness and I-, I like that did you like that well no I like Charlotte Rampling I mean I think she's the one person in the film who you know she has absolutely immaculate dignity even in or especially at her her terrible tragic moment at the end in which she simply holds her head high and she she dispenses with these kind of quizzical looks throughout the film as if to say, oh my God, what did I get myself into? I, you know, and this is someone who starred in, <laughs> someone who starred in the night porter for God's sake. So I thought she was wonderful. You know, I, you, you can watch her in everything. She's always perfect. I have to say also, I, I think Virginie Efira is really underrated and she's been in some fantastic films and can I just make a connection? I didn't think she was great in this at all, but she was terrific in the last film by Catherine Corsini. And Catherine Corsini's new film, La Rupture, which didn't really uh, chime with the critics here, but Catherine Corsini made a film called An Impossible Love with Virginie Efferra. I'm, I'm jumping around madly, but her new film, since we talked about Bruno Dumont's France, her film... I thought really is uh, this festival's great French state of the nation. So Corsini made that film Summertime, right? A few years yeah. ago. That Okay, I, re- I, I remember really loving that film. It's interesting. You're, you're making all these connections. That's kind of about this lesbian relationship in like 70s Paris. And I remember just being so awash with like, you know, feeling and color and and passion. So I was curious about this one. And it's, what, what's it about? Well, it's really interesting. Okay, so it starts off with this couple played by Valeria Bruni Tedeschi and Marina Fois, who is one of the most, you know, again, she's a sort of unknown quantity outside France and an absolute axiom of French cinema. And they play this couple who are kind of falling apart and Tedeschi is kind of, as usual, sort of super neurotic and full-on is sending her, you know, she bombards her with 47 text messages while she's lying asleep in bed next to her. And Foïs kind of goes through this with absolute sort of sang-froid and ends up visiting her in the emergency room in hospital where she's having her elbow fracture fixed while there's a gilet jaune 
demonstration going outside, which, which, which has kind of exploded you know, in the face of this police action. And there's a very angry truck driver who's also in there. And everyone kind of yells up and ends up yelling at each other. But basically, it's about the fact that, you know, the Gilets Jaunes demonstrations have attracted both the left and the far right. So that, that whole thing of, so are you on the left or on the right? And in this film, genuinely, no one knows. And everyone's kind of accusing each other of being you know, either a sort of petit bourgeois or, you know, oh, you think I'm a Le Pen supporter. Um, and it's a lot of it is played for farce, but it's got a real kind of social anger to it and an intensity. And also, I think on Corsini's part, it's an incredible act of solidarity with the French health services, you know, and you get the sense in the film that like so many health services, uh, everywhere they're underfunded and the staff are overpressured. What are these health services you speak of? <laughs> ah, services. <laughs> I think I think you have something like that on on American TV. I think we don't. <laughs> I think we don't have. I think we're without any health services. You're listening to the Film Comment podcast. Sign up today for the Film Comment Letter. It's a free weekly digital newsletter featuring original film criticism and writing by Film Comment's editors and brilliant contributors. The letter delivers exclusive features, reviews, interviews, streaming picks, news, and more directly to subscribers' inboxes every Thursday before they're published on filmcomment.com the following Monday. Sign up today at filmcomment.com. We've somehow talked about French movies. Well, we started with France. I think that the yeah, we've yeah. just gone down that road. Yeah, and I'm wondering if we can talk about Paris, the 13th. It's a film that I have seen, did not actually like. But Jonathan, you said you liked it. And also, I've never been to Paris. So uh, maybe you can, you know, tell us a little bit, a bit about that film and like, what is the significance of the title and the neighborhood that, it's named after, and maybe that'll, you know, give me some context too. Okay, so it's uh, Jacques Audiard's new film, and interestingly, it's based on three stories by the uh, comics artist uh, Adrian uh, Tomine, and it's co-written with two writer-directors, Léa Missius, who, who has worked with Arnaud Desplechins and also made a very good film called Ava, and uh, she's about to release something else of her own soon. And the other writer is Céline Sciamma. And in some ways, you can see this film, I think, as much being part of the Céline Sciamma canon as, as Odia. But it's basically uh, about four youngish people in Paris, a young woman from a Taiwanese family, a young black man who is a literary professor uh, working on, on his thesis. There's a young woman from the provinces working at, you know, doing a law degree at the Sorbonne. And then there's a fourth character who is sort of in the background and emerges. Basically, she emerges out of that strange place, the internet. And just to add, the third, the, the law student is Noemi Merlant, right? Exactly, yeah. From Portrait of a Lady on Fire. 
Yeah, yeah. And it's it's about the way people connect or don't connect in uh, the digital age. And it's about, you know, how uh, love is impossible to find. Uh, but, you know, you can get laid at the click of a button, young people tell me. You know, and it's very, you know, non-judgmental. I mean, it's not like, you know, a Hanukkah or a Bruno Dumont sort of waving the moralistic finger and saying, you know, look how unhappy people are. I think it's very... Uh, non-judgmental and it's very non-moralizing and it's very much about uh you know the kind of euphoria of of modern city life so so the french title is les olympiades which is the name of this big tower block development in the southeast of paris which is also a very racially and culturally mixed area particularly uh, large Asian population, and it's attempting, in a way, to sort of remeasure or to, or, to, or to sort of reinvent certain aspects of, you know, new wave representation of Paris and particularly youth in Paris, uh, which I think it does brilliantly. And there's a, a DOP called Paul Guillaume, who I wasn't aware of before. But it makes the city absolutely beautiful and it buzzes and, you know, the editing is speedy and, you know, it kind of reinvents spaces like, you know, metro tunnels and dull offices, you know, like the phone sales office where um, uh, one of the characters works. Um, you know, and, and it's a very it's a very light film, you know, in some ways it's quite slender, but it just has a sort of freshness and an energy to, uh, to it that I really enjoyed. Now, some of the narratives and the way they play out are more contrived than perhaps they needed to be. But, you know, sort of certain strings and, and coincidences are being pulled to, to sort of lead us to a happy ending. But I found it very, uh, you know, given how, how bleak you expect endings to be in the competition it was nice to see you know an odr film which which kind of says hey you know sort of life is life is to be lived and enjoyed well Devika, what was your take here your problem with it clint is like i am so convinced by jonathan they go what is wrong with you? it sounds like the perfect movie to me i can't i don't see any so, problem with what he said it sounded like i can't, can't it go does wrong. have a very affirming ending well that's all that i ask for <laughs> The actors are young and beautiful. The cinematography is beautiful, you know, very like lustrous, you know, just makes the city look like it's flowing and silken. There's like great music sequences edited to that music. There's like party scenes and karaoke scenes and lots of sex. I just wish the movie had embraced that frothiness that, you know, you were saying, Jonathan, like, kind of a light movie it's a slender movie I wish it had really leaned into just being a movie about sexy young people uh you know living in France there is a kind of looseness and abandon to their lives that the plot lacks so you know they're kind of like running into each other you know their lives are taking these strange turns they're figuring themselves out but the story really, I mean, the contrivances completely ruin it for me because um, the Noemi Merlon character, who is a law student, that one was probably my least favorite track. And I, I, I really think she's, she's a very good performer, in my opinion. I've not seen her in a lot of stuff, but she's well cast for this because she's simultaneously beautiful and elegant, but also has a reserve and a coyness, which we saw yeah. in Portrait. And her, her character is sort of gauche. 
um, which is what I liked. And, but, but actually, the great thing about it is, you know, for me, you know, it mixes that sort of joie de vivre and the fact that, you know, they're all having, they, some of the time they're having a great time, but they're also doing dreary jobs. You know, the flat that two of the characters live in has got a great view, but I think the flat itself is not that great. Uh, they have to earn a living. They don't always get to do what they want. So, for example, suddenly uh, the character Camille, who is the, uh, the literary teacher, uh, and and uh, doctoral student played by Makita Samba's fantastic discovery. He's got this really kind of affable, ironic, laid-back style. He's real great, warm. yeah. And suddenly you realise, wait a minute, how come he's working as an estate agent? And suddenly it's like, yeah, I've dropped the literary thing. I'll come back to it. And you think, no, he'll never come back to it. That is, okay, that was another point where it's like, he's a teacher. He's literally a high school teacher who's trying to finish his thesis. And his friend needs someone to take care of the sinking real estate agency. So he decides to take it over. And to me, it's like, how is this exactly working financially or in terms of, you know, I mean, it just sort of doesn't make sense. It felt very much like a contrivance to get him to meet, you know, the character he ends up meeting in that space. And with the Noemi Merlant character, I, I feel like I should summarize her, her track because she arrives in town to attend law students. She's sort of someone who's come to school late in life after, you know, having had a career. And it turns out that she goes to a party in a blonde wig and it's a college party. And it turns out that she has a striking resemblance to like some popular uh, cam girl that all the college students know, like some kind of OnlyFans star. And so they think that she is her and sort of like, you know, people are always making fun of her and like pointing to her in the campus. And so that sort of like ruins basically her life and her plans. And but then she gets in touch with that cam girl and like develops, you know, slowly gets closer and closer to that cam girl and like kind of finds herself through that relationship. It's first of all, it's just so unnecessarily convoluted. I won't spoil the realization that she arrives at, but, you know, this, I believe, was probably the Celine Siama like part of the film. And I just felt like you do not need a cam girl, like a random a resemblance with the cam girl leading to a chance meeting with her to arrive at that ending. And it felt a little bit like an older person, like trying to say like, oh, this is how this new world of social media and, you know, online porn works, you know? I mean, even this idea that, even this idea that because she has a resemblance to this cam girl, her like life is ruined. Like she can't go to school anymore without people pointing at her. It's just not how, you know, social media and the internet really work, in my opinion. No, and the weirdest thing about it is that, you know, no one figures out, hold on, you know, she's just wearing a generic blonde wig. You know, <laughs> this is the blonde wig that cam girls would presumably wear. Yeah. Looks like Jonathan is coming around. <laughs> Sounds like you've convinced Jonathan there. I'm impressed. <laughs> no, although I have to say that that the cam girl is really good. She is played by Jenny Bett, who incidentally was also in the last Catherine Corsini film. She is ah. the singer of the band Savages, now a solo artist mm. as well. She's just made a record with Bobby Gillespie from Primal Scream. But she actually started her career years ago before music 
under her own name in a film by a very, very, not esoteric, but certainly underrated French director called Jean-Paul Siverac. And suddenly, you know, she's back in this kind of, in this blonde wig, being kind of super hard and covered with tattoos and just sort of full on, and actually kind of playing up a sort of complete negative, you know, the sort of the, the complete uh, flip side of her... Um, you know, her, her musical persona in, in a really interesting way. No, she's lovely. Like I said, I think the performers are so great. But amid all of, again, like I said, just their serendipity-driven, you know, encounters and their romantic confusions, there's an ailing grandmother, you know, a, a sister with a stutter trying to make a stand-up career, you know, this whole you know confusion about sexuality and this you know cam girl and it's just you don't need all of this you know you don't need all of this just these three people or these four people and you know their amazing screen presence and them figuring their lives out in Paris would have been enough and so that's where it you know why go that extra step of adding all all this plot uh that's just drags the film a little bit into you know melodrama and sentimentalism when the look and feel of the film is really not going for that like the look of the film the way it's shot and edited is really to me you know it's not trying to be melodramatic at all i actually think that sounds pretty good now sounds like a crazy mess i'm oh, sorry Miriam. well jonathan said something really interesting about how some of the films you know you expect the films in competition to be sort of you know, bleak, heavy-handed, not always, but I thought that there was an unexpected amount of comedy this year or just sort of uh, joy. And I don't know if that was purposeful or just sort of what people are making, but like films like Red Rocket, which was like a pure comedy and Compartment Number 6, which was just sort of like despite yourself, pure joy, like a, a smile glued. I was thinking also of Lingui as you were describing that. Lingui is pure joy? The Ma- no, no, <laughs> Maha- the Mohammed Saleh Harun movie. It's not pure joy, but it's, it, I expect, I kept expecting it to go to like a very dark place. And there is unexpected comedy and it's ultimately life affirming and it has a happy ending. Perfect ending. Yeah. yeah, very yeah. comedic. Yeah. And it's, but it was very surprising to me. I, I just kind of had like, Totally, an expectation is that it would go in a totally different direction throughout, which was maybe the tension that the movie created. Could you guys tell us a little bit about uh, Lingui? I, I haven't seen that one, so what what's it about? Lingui is about a single mother in Chad, living in Chad, and she has a teenage daughter. She's sort of been cast out of her family. There is a incipient Islamist government, or maybe not government, there's an, a movement, a sort of fundamentalist movement that she's sort of tangentially kind of part of as a way of engaging her community. The mother will go to services and has, has conversations with the imam, but she seems to be kind of like just going through the motions. And she's definitely kind of a, you get the impression right away that she's a survivor just doing what she needs to do to care for her daughter and herself. And uh, an older man, an older acquaintance from whom she's borrowed money proposes marriage to her, to the mother, and she's sort of like not into it. Um, And then her 15-year-old daughter gets pregnant and gets thrown out of the private school, the, the Catholic school that she goes to as a result and the rest of the movie becomes almost a thriller where they're trying to figure out a way to get 
the 15 year old daughter an abortion and the mother is just running around town trying to raise money in order to pay for an abortion through the clinic because they do kind of black market abortions on the, in and she's able to do that things fall through there's a, a bunch of kind of situations that are very tense but throughout this the mother is just very resilient so this is the setup makes it sound like this is going to be like very melodramatic and like a social issue movie that like wags its finger in your face and and tells you like you know th- that the movie's about the tra- the tra- like the travails of these women in Chad and it is to a certain extent but it's almost much more about the mother daughter relationship and just the and the movie's called Lingui the Sacred Bonds and at one point i think the sister of of the the mother's sister the aunt comes and and talks and says what about our sacred bonds we have sacred bonds i need your help to do this thing and it's and it really becomes not just about the mother daughter relationship but that those bonds between the women of the society and this patriarchal society and how they kind of help each other survive in ways that are not above ground. <laughs> so they're constantly just sort of pulling tricks on the patriarchs, you know, and it's, it's, that is, it is sad in that respect, but there's something joyful about the performance of the, of the woman who plays the mother, who I think is an, is a non-professional actor. So that's, that's my thumbnail sketch of Lingui, which, which I actually liked quite a bit. Yeah. I, I didn't see it, but you know, I mean, he's a very good director and Mahamat Saleh Haroon. I'm always interested in seeing his films, although some have been definitely better than others, but he's got a very kind of classical pared down approach. And, you know, is that, is that the sort of style he has in this film as well? Yeah. 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 I would say so. I think that what I liked about it was I expected something different and I, and I was surprised by the positivity. So Jonathan, did you see either of those red rocket or compartment number six? What did you think? I saw both of those. I thought compartment number six was uh, a very charming film, very well-made film. It didn't excite me in any way. I was surprised it was in competition. This is by uh, the young director, uh, Juho Kosmanen, I think, the young Finnish director whose first film was uh, The Happiest Day in the Life of Oli Mackie, which caused a stir here a few years ago. Uh, black and white, very stylized. This was kind of humorous, sort of gentle travelogue about, you know, two unlikely travelers meeting on a train. That, you know, I was happy to be there in the compartment with them. Uh, I didn't particularly find the journey riveting. Red Rock, uh, Red Rocket, on the other hand, by Sean Baker, uh, was kind of a blast and certainly one of the liveliest things in competitions. So this is his follow up to. Tangerine and the Florida Project, both of them absolutely extraordinary and crackling with life and crackling with life partly because of, you know, the way they were shot, you know, with those incredibly vivid colours, you know, famously, he he kind of showed the world what you can do with uh, an iPhone and some uh, post-production apps. But this one is shot more conventionally It's about uh, a small town. It's one of those, you know, someone returns to their small town and is completely unwelcome. And in this case, it's uh, a male porn star who's who's sort of returned to a small town, who's left L.A., where apparently he claims he he has won thousands of awards in the industry. But for whatever reason, he has returned impoverished and in disgrace, uh, literally with only the T-shirt and jeans he's wearing. You know, he, he turns up with no luggage off the bus. So, you know, God knows what's happened to him. 
And then, you know, once you get to know him, you realise why, because he's probably alienated, you know, people across the continent. I mean, he's a really, really terrible person. And he's played by uh, someone called Simon Rex. He, he turns up in this small town, moves in with his wife, uh, who he's estranged from, who's also been in the porn industry, and her very disapproving mother, and moves back in into, you know, this really, this real dump of a house, uh, in kind of a dump of a town, and then starts hitting on this teenage girl who works in the local donut shop in a really disturbing way. And then something else happens in the film, which is incredibly disturbing. He, he causes, his idiocy causes this terrible catastrophe, uh, which I won't, I won't, sort of spell out and it gets a friend of his into catastrophically deep trouble and he kind of you know shambles on it's like phew my god I've got away with that I think the film doesn't take on doesn't quite handle the fact that what he does and and its results are really really shockingly dreadful and it carries on trying to play it for fast and then you come out and you're thinking God, you know, he's he's basically been grooming this young girl for a career in hardcore porn in order to get himself back on the map. And it's kind of, I don't think the film quite has the measure of the sort of the nastiness that it's dealing with. But of course, it puts us in a very weird position because as horrible, you know, completely odious and obnoxious as this guy is, he's sort of you know, enormous fun to be around. I mean, it's amazing performance. I don't know if you remember some of those films. I was wondering, I was like, Simon Rex, Simon Rex, who is that? And then he's, apparently he was an MTV VJ. He was also in Scary Movies. This is a definitely a different career path for him. There was a standing ovation for them, for him in particular, and for the director that I found very moving because, you know, it's sort of like, you know, an unexpected career path for him to be in this place and the Grand Palais and this like, you know, of this very, but he's so charismatic and Sean Baker uses him so well. He has this very old school comic energy. Who did he remind me of? Like he just is sort of like so hyper kinetic and not a Jerry Lewis exactly, but he's just got this crazy energy and it's so wonderful to see it used in I think probably a way that hasn't been used before and I'm sure others will use it he reminded me of like Marky Mark and and Boogie Nights is an easy uh, you know Mark Wahlberg and Boogie Nights he's like yeah he has he has a nude scene a very a very funny nude scene but you're gonna look at it and go okay yeah it could be a porn star yeah there's well yeah and I think that it was wonderful to see him utilize that comedy but you're absolutely right Jonathan there are things that like in that you know this catastrophe that he causes I was like did this go a little bit far and it's like did it sort of like it's it's it's, again it's something that I am loved it's embrace of just like humor and just the sort of joyousness it's wonderful to see Simon Rex utilized this way. He has, he's, he's such a comic presence and it's not like anything. I mean, it, it, this movie was very much like 70s movies too, like 1970s movies, not just American ones, but lots of zooms and like who, like he's a kind of a Randy Quaid energy, but it's true what you say about the grooming and there, there are these very, you know, the, the, the joy was so immense in it. It's, 
it's interesting. And I, I did feel that some of the Trump stuff was maybe, it takes place in 2016. So there's a lot of like watching the news footage. And I think there's, you know, a lot of maybe a little bit heavy handed analogies to the charisma. Like a kind of shampoo thing. Uh, yeah, but also more not quite. I, I always think of that when I see like election results. But I think that in this, it's more like making very obvious comparisons to this sort of like childlike charismatic figure, you know, and I think that I'm not sure if that totally works. But it's interesting also compared to compartment number six, because they have these like charismatic guy, they have the same beats where you think someone is like, going, you know, there are just these decisions made along the film, where you realize in compartment number six, that this is actually a great person, a good person. And in um, Red Rocket, it's like these beats where you realize like, oh, this is truly a terrible person. <laughs> There's no getting around this, like he's making these moral decisions. And it's very old fashioned in that way, too. But it was it was really enjoyable. Definitely looking forward to those. I mean, I, I want to see it, though, because I know people can be mixed on Sean Baker's films a lot. I myself have been mixed on them. But I do think that that kind of towing on the edge of sort of danger and menace and that confusion about how really terrible a person is or, you know, where their motives come from. I found myself like pretty affected by that in his last couple of films. So I'm definitely looking forward to this one. I would say it's my favorite of his films. Oh, okay. I, I had some issues with with the the previous two, in particular the last one, and I I really this absolutely got me. I did like the the earlier one about the the Tangerine? porn star. No, no, the porn star and the and the old woman. That one. It's interesting that all his films are about sex workers. I asked him that once about what that was about and expected to hear some kind of biographical information. But he just said, I don't know. You should ask my therapist. Oh, <laughs> I'm not sure. <laughs> okay. Starlet, right? I think Starlet is the name of that movie. Oh, right? Starlet That's is the true. name of the movie. Yeah. I mean, I really is... enjoy- yeah. Sh- should we talk about Titan? Because it for me, it was the kind of the, the, you know, the bizarro title of the festival. Yeah, let's yeah. do that. There's also a lot of unexpected comedy in that, which I found a little hard to take. It was very French comedy. Most of the reactions I've seen have been these like hyperbolic raves and like you really don't know, you know, what what to expect when you read like just these strings of adjectives. So I'm I'm very curious to hear what you thought about it. So this is Titan, and it's a second film by Julia Ducourneau, who made a fantastic film a few years ago called Raw, which was a horror film about uh, a young vegetarian student who enters into a world that discovers that there's a kind of history of flesh eating. Uh, and it's a very, very full on film, but really kind of provocative and confrontational. So uh, on the strength of that, Julia Ducourneau has obviously been given uh, a great deal of money and a great deal of license to make a second film, which is completely crazy. And traditionally, this was, there used to be a, a tradition in Cannes for years that someone would make a brilliant first film, which everyone loved. Then they'd make a second one, which was bigger and more extravagant, which would be booed off screen in the Palais. And that happened with Jean-Jacques Benex, and it happened with several other people. I think in, in, in years gone by, this would have been that film. And the whole thing about Titan is, 
it is crazy, it is unwieldy, it's all over the place, like three or four films rolled into one. It's completely ridiculous. Uh, you know, it's, it's trashy, but it is so energetic and, you know, so cinematically full on that, you know, you can almost imagine Julia Ducournau saying, well, you know, Gaspar Noé is kind of becoming, you know, a bit of, uh, the, you know, the wise old man of French cinema these days. So his slot, and, and we won't talk about Gaspar Noé's film just now, but we will get round to it. But it is, you know, I just, I'm I'm curious because all these other films, Gaspar Noé, and we've been, you know, we're talking about Sean Baker, and I don't know if there's any similarity, but this is a film by a young woman director, you know, so I'm curious how that aspect of like the exploitation and sexiness and trashiness all plays out. Yeah, well, it plays out absolutely full on. Um, you know, I mean, there has been a boom in recent years in uh, women's horror films, you know, starting, I guess, from The Babadook and most recently in the UK, uh, Prono Bailey Bond Censor, which uh, right. absolutely kind of revels in the extremities of 80s, 90s, straight to video violence. Um, the violence in this film is incredibly full on, uh, but it's absolutely a comic strip. Uh, it's very Cronenberg as well, mm. sometimes quite knowingly. Uh, there's a lot to do with, with kind of car sex, which is obviously a very, very broad wink. Uh, Crash, it's got prosthetics, it's got weird gynecological stuff going on. Okay, when you say car sex, I do want to clarify, is the sex in a car or with a car? Both. It's sex, okay. it's sex <laughs> with a car, in the car, and then okay. a lot of engine oil where you would normally expect to find it. There's a fantastic first-time actress that you're going to have to Google very quickly because I've just forgotten her name. But she is I'm an extraordinary presence because she is so... I mean, she's put herself out there right from the beginning. So basically... Agatha kind of, Roussel. Agatha Roussel, that's it. And she struts into this kind of car show where there are all these guys standing around and women kind of twerking over the sort of sheened bonnets of these cars. And it's kind of hypersexual and, you know, kind of almost pornographic. And, you know, she's basically playing the same kind of role as the cam girl in um, the Odia. Mm -hmm. And then she handles one guy's kind of unwanted attentions in a very kind of radical way, you know, very sort of, Ooh, now we're into Abel Ferrara territory. And then she makes a connection with this other girl, uh, this young woman who's, she's got her hair tangled in this woman's nipple ring in the shower. And it kind of goes on from there. And okay. then the violence starts again. And, and then she has to go on the run. She performs a kind of impromptu act of very extreme nose surgery which she just kind of wimps at at this point it gets crazier because then she she kind of gets taken in by the chief of a firefighting squad which is basically a kind of Baudrillard style homoerotic dance troupe and she forks this weird father son slash father daughter slash lover's relationship i mean everything oh in the film is kind of hyper some of those slashes should not be there <laughs> yeah it's it's a it's a slash heavy film and it's like 
you know, I, I guess Ducournau thought, you know, I have enough ideas for five films here and they're all going to be crazy and extreme and I'm just going to throw everything into one, into one box. And I've got to say, this is totally not my kind of film. I don't normally go for this kind of horror. I don't normally go for that kind of very sort of contrived cult pop outrage. But this is totally full on. You know, I just had to kind of, you know, let myself be, you know, you know, basically it kind of, it's like a fast car that just drives at you and drives at you and drives at you. Um, I don't know if it's a good film. Uh, I think that's kind of beside the point. It's just, you know, totally a blast. And there's more kind of crazy cinema in this. And, and it's like, forget the fast and the furious, you know, when it comes to kind of car fantasy, this is faster and more furious. It, it is, it's almost like, uh, you know, a kind of, female Cronenbergian Fast and mm. Furious. It's it's just nuts. <laughs> female Cronenbergian Fast and Furious. Okay. <laughs> Don't forget <laughs> the homoerotic yeah. dance troupe because that's yes. a big part yeah, of it. Yeah, yeah. Like I think that like that description is really good. And I, I'm I'm totally with you. I'm not I'm not a big horror person. Like it's not my field of expertise. I'm someone who kind of watches through my fingers and I did a lot of that in this, but it's truly full on. Like it's so committed to its choices and it's incredibly cringy. And I mean, I really felt like you know, like I felt this horror wise, but also in terms of everything, in terms of the plot choices and in terms of these comedic moments, which are, it's like Vincent Linden. How do you say his name, Jonathan? Vincent Linden. Thank you. Vincent. Oh, well, you actually have to say it in, in a basso voice. You have to growl. <laughs> yeah, Vincent, yeah. Vincent Linden. <laughs> yes, of course. And he's, you've never seen him like this in this film. He's never, like, never, so, never, never. He worked out for two years. He's so beefy and he does these dance scenes, which I think he said in interviews, he kind of didn't know what it was about, but he was committed and he was going to do this. And, um, they're so goofy in that really French contemporary comedy goofiness that was like, I didn't expect. But also all these plot choices just go so quickly. Everything that Jonathan, a lot of what Jonathan described happens in the first like 20 minutes of the film. And you're just flying through these incredibly strange plot turns involving, yeah, car sex and serial killers and like extreme violence. And then, but it really becomes about this story that's like, even though he said it's, you know, father, son, father, daughter, it's quite sweet. And it's really the story of these like two weirdos, this sort of who find each other. And it's really unexpectedly sweet. And, and I really found the comedy more cringe inducing than the violence. Like, it, yeah. but, but I, but I, I, it was exactly the opposite of what I said about Benedetta. It was completely mm. committed to everything and just yeah full on in a way that I completely appreciated. And I also appreciated that I felt it in my body. Like I, my stomach turned, I wanted to throw up, I wanted release and like, you know, coming back to the cinemas after not having been in a long time, that was, that was a that was a rewarding experience. Yeah. I have to say, both of you said that you were a little bit like mixed before we started recording and I am so sold. I mean, you've yeah. sold it so well. I mean, do you, is it the sort of thing where like in retrospect, thinking back, you're like, was I just sort of bowled over by the spectacle and like the fast pace and like the, the just constant onslaught of... Well, sort of, but 
It's, it's witty as well. There's a kind of, uh, there's a sequence at the beginning, near the beginning, which is basically her doing a kind of Brian De Palma slash slash again, Tarantino riff. And, you know, one of those moments, oh my God, how many people do I have to kill? Oh my God, there are more of you. And, and you know, that's very, that's very funny. You also get a cameo from the director Bertrand Bonello, uh, Obviously, you know, oh, we've got to get the art house people in as well. So he's in a cameo at the beginning and he's just got this wonderfully lugubrious face. It's just, let's say, it's a really heady, exotic mix, which is very nice because there were some films in competition this year that were a little staid and, uh, you know, a little bourgeois. And I have to say the worst of them was Nanni Moretti's film, Tre Piani, which is about, you know, various characters sort of crossing paths in a house. And it was so just kind of complacent. And actually there's one moment in it where the character played by Nanni Moretti himself receives a very brutal kicking. And I think everyone in the audience kind of felt that, you know, they oh, wished no. that, they you cheered. know, he fully they... deserved it for making this <laughs> terrible film. I think your tweet, Jonathan, uh, I found it very amusing that said it all. I think you said like, the only good thing about Trepiani is that it isn't Quattro Piani. <laughs> well, uh, there's uh, quite a few movies that I think were like very full on that really did make me feel like the movies are back. You know, the theatrical experience is back, including Annette and Petrov's Flu. And also some that were not that, but still sort of got me there, like Memoria. And I know that Souvenir Part 2 is definitely also a film that has some really great, based on uh, Jonathan's Dispatch, you know, it, it brings back cinema in some interesting ways. And I think Sugua Diaries also, we should definitely revisit. Oh, yeah, there. by Miguel Gomez. But yeah, we, we have a pretty exciting crop of movies to discuss in our next episode. Stay tuned for that. And Jonathan and Miriam, thank you so much for making time. You're busy, you know, last couple days of can schedules. It was really great to hear from you guys. And excited to have you back very soon for the rest of the movies. Thanks very much. It's been a pleasure. It was such a pleasure. Bye. The Film Comment Podcast features original music by Greg Einge. Film Comment is a publication of film at Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has been the home of independent film journalism, publishing in-depth interviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, arthouse, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com.